How many of you know that raising children is hard, but God gives grace? Know that, okay. You know, it, it is true. Raising children can make you lose your ever-loving mind. <laughs> amen? Can I get an amen to that? I mean, your kids can drive you crazy, but God will give you the grace that you need to minister to your kids. That's the good news. God will help you not to kill them. <laughs> Have you noticed that you don't need to teach your kids to sin? Have you observed that? They start out young and sweet and innocent, and then one day you discover to your dismay that they have actually have a sin nature. You've noticed that? You guys okay this morning? You're not talking to me. Talk to me. Your children are sinners, and they don't need to be taught uh, how to push your buttons. They don't need to be taught how to work you. They seem to have a, an innate, instinctive capacity for those things. Marcy and I have two children. Each of them has tried us severely, each in their own ways. Lauren, our firstborn, strong-willed. Even when she was a toddler, she would take me on. And at that age, she couldn't pronounce her name Lauren. She called herself Lowings. And, and there, was a, there was an occasion... Um, when she was, what was she, three, Marcy, roughly? It was just one of those moments where um, it was too quiet and your spidey sense goes off, you know, there's, there's just something that's too quiet. And I, this is when we lived in California and I was in the kitchen and I, I just had this sense something wasn't right and I walked through the dining room out into the hallway and I, honestly, I don't remember what she was doing, but she was doing something that she knew she wasn't supposed to do. And, and what I remember is that she looked up at me and she straightened her back and she said, she called me Poppy in those days. She said, Poppy, don't say Lowings no. <laughs> and, and you know, we always assumed she'd either be the first female president or a prosecuting attorney or an international terrorist, one, one of those three. John Michael, our second, was charming, devious. That boy could work us. He could especially work his mother. There was one occasion when he had, he had done something wrong in the presence of his mother. And he had been sent to his room to wait for his father to come home to get to the seat of the problem, if you know what I mean. And again, I don't remember what he had done. Isn't that one of the blessings of, of, as you get older, you don't remember the wrong things your kids do? Just remember the funny things that happened. But uh, I don't remember what he had done. But for his mother to have sent him to his room to wait for dad to get home meant that it was something bad. And um, he knew that he was going to be spanked. So when I arrived home from work, I checked in with Marcy. I said, so what happened and she told me and I, I went upstairs to his room and entered the room where he was waiting with a terrified look on his face and uh, I asked, son, do you understand why I'm going to spank you? And he said, yes. I said, can you explain it to me? He, and he did it uh, with great clarity as I recall. 
and to my satisfaction. And then I sat down on his bed and I took his little body and laid it across my lap. And with my right hand, I struck his bottom. But something didn't sound right. (laughs) And it didn't feel right either. Because instead of that satisfying slap, you know, it was a soft thud. And so just to make sure that what I heard and felt was actually what I heard and felt, I I did it again. Same thing, soft thud. And I said, son, will you please remove your pants? And he did. Which is when I discovered that he was wearing every pair of underwear he owned. (laughs) He was padded. He knew what he had done deserved more than the average number of swats, and he wanted to be prepared. This was the same young man who, when backing my 2001 F-150 Super Crew Cab Lariat Edition leather interior, bells and whistles, my precious, made contact with the fence, tearing this side view mirror off, and he still complains about how much work he had to do to pay, to pay that off in the yard. This is the same young man who in our driveway, backing that same F-150 Super Crew Lariat Edition leather interior bells and whistles, my precious, totaled it in our driveway. So he's, he's, he has learner's permit, he's backing into the driveway He always had this thing about backing in, still does today, about backing in. And he realized, he looked in the side view mirror, realized he was about to hit the hedge. And so he mistook the accelerator for the brake and rocketed back, not through one hedge, but through three hedges and hit our house and bent the frame of my F-150 Super Crew Lariat Edition leather interior beyond repair. Totaled my precious, my driveway. Your children can make you lose your mind, but God will give you grace not to kill them. I explained to my son more than once that in ancient times the penalty for disrespectfulness and disobedience to parents was to be taken outside the camp and stoned to death. And I want you to know that God gave me grace not to do that. Our son John is now married for over a year to the lovely Mallory, who is a model of love and patience and a gift of God's grace in his life. They recently purchased their first home. He is, to our surprise and astonishment, serving Northview Community Church in Mill Creek as a full-time director of worship. He who said, I'll never be like you, Dad. I'll never work in a church. And God is using him significantly in that community of believers. We're very proud of John and Mallory. Today, our daughter Lauren is fulfilling her dream of becoming a choral music teacher. She's already a, a great teacher and getting better. I'm proud of her accomplishment, but more importantly, I'm proud of the woman she's becoming. So our theme this morning is Miracle Grow. 
because in, in spite of what we as fathers know that we are and know that we are not, God nevertheless invites men to be partners with him in the miraculous process of helping kids grow into healthy adults, emotionally, intellectually, socially, spiritually. And I want you to know this morning, dads, that, that you can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you will not find a perfect father except for our heavenly father. In fact, you'll have a hard time finding a really good father in the pages of the Bible. You'll find men that failed more than they succeeded in their role as dads. That ought to encourage us a little. And it ought to remind us that, that uh, it's hard work. It's more of an art than a science. The Bible, nevertheless, has a lot to say to fathers. And this morning, I want to direct your attention to two very clear commands to fathers in the New Testament. The first is found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, where Paul wrote, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The second one is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, very similar language. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Two different churches, two different letters, very similar commands, very similar exhortations. And because they're so similar, it ought to cause us to sit up and take notice and say there's something here that Paul had in mind, something God wants us to understand. And so if we were to hybridize those two verses, it might sound like this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As I mentioned a few minutes ago during the dedication, the biblical writers, and hence the Holy Spirit behind them, put the responsibility for the spiritual nurture of children squarely on the shoulders of fathers. And beyond the fathers, generally other men in the church. The Bible clearly affirms, even celebrates, the the ministries of women, the influence of mothers and, and other women in the lives of children. But the responsibility and the accountability for the discipleship of children is always placed on men. I don't know why, but it's very clear that that's the way God designed it to be. It's not just interesting. It should be sobering to us as men, as fathers, as dads. And it ought to challenge us to step up and and be the spiritual leaders we are called and wired to be in our homes and in the church. You say, wired to be? I'm not wired to be a spiritual leader. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. It, it came with the biology. 
It, it came when somebody said in a hospital somewhere, it's a boy. God wired you to be a spiritual leader in the life of someone else, whether it's your wife, your children, other people in the church. Behind each of the two commands we just considered are some essential resources for the task of bringing up our kids in the Lord. I want you to understand these this morning, men. I'm speaking to you. Women, keep your elbows to yourselves. But I am speaking, men, to you this morning. The first essential resource of a father is the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Where do I get that? Again, the command, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord. This command comes at pretty much the tail end of a larger discussion that began in chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul said, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or more literally, be being filled with the Spirit. A continuous process, a continuous filling. A And then he says, out of that will come some changes in who you are. First of all, he says, as you are being filled with the Spirit, you will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, there's going to be a change in your communication. It'll be a change in your language. It'll be a change in the tone. It'll be a change in the content of your communication. Second, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's going to be a, a heart of worship that comes from the, in, into the life of the one who is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Third, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of being the, you know, the grouchy, grumpy, growly guy you were, you, be, you develop the attitude of gratitude in your life. And then fourth, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That, that out of the filling of the Holy Spirit, there's a mutual submission that takes place between believers. And he talks about it in, in, in a set of, three sets of relationships. First, he addresses a wife and says, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, his, the husband's role in submission is love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her, having you know, washed her with, with the water of the word. So wife to husband, husband to wife, again, in the context of submission. And then he says, children to your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's the first commandment with a promise that you may have a a long life. They won't kill you. And then he says, fathers to your children. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Your 
again, still in the context of submission. Fathers, we are to be submissive to our children. The way that we do that is by bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then, finally, it's slaves, Christian slaves to their masters and Christian masters to their slaves. But the the resource for being the father that God has called you to be is the continuous filling of the Holy Spirit. Single women, who do you want to marry? A guy like this or somebody that doesn't have the Spirit of God in their life? Because the Spirit of God is the sole province, the sole experience of believers. A.W. Tozer once wrote that the fullness of the Spirit is not a matter of how much of the Holy Spirit you have, but how much of the you the Holy Spirit has. Paul said when you've when you entered into a relationship with Christ, you were given the fullness. You, you were given it all. God didn't hold anything back. He gave you the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The question is, how much of you are you surrendering to the Holy Spirit? Father's second essential resource is the word of Christ. Now we're going to the command in Colossians 3. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And again, if we follow the, the trail back, you go to, not as far back in this case, but go back to chapter 3, verse 16. You read this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So very similar to to what he said to the Ephesians, but now to the Colossians, he says, out of the, the fullness of the word in your life, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Men, if you're gonna be the father that God wants you to be and the kind of father that you wanna be, you're gonna have to get into God's word. You, it, it is absolutely essential. It is non-optional. Father's third essential resource is prayer. Philippians 4, verse 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Anything about parenting, dads, that make you worry a little bit? (laughs) Yep, a lot. Paul says, don't worry about it, pray about it. You're going to be an effective father. You're going to have to have an an active prayer life. Tell God what you need. He knows already. Tell him. Ask him. Thank him for all that he has done. Now let's examine those two commands more deeply. First is this. Do not provoke your children to anger. The word Paul used here that's translated provoke is perogizo. And I share it with you not because I want to impress you. I'm not a Greek scholar anyway, but, but what I want you to understand is, I want you to understand this word and to understand what it is that Paul's warning against here. It's a compound word that begins with the Greek para, which means close beside. So if you're a para educator, 
You're working beside an edge. If you're para anything, you're working alongside someone else. The second word in this compound word is, is the word orgizo, which means to become angry or to make angry. And it is a graphically descriptive word. It, it describes a kind of provocation that's, that's up close and personal in its nature. Para orgizo. Where a father gets right up into his child's grill and repeatedly and persistently pushes his or her buttons, provokes their child. It conveys a situation where a father misuses, misuses his close personal relationship and his superior authority as the father to consistently and systematically produce an angry young person. Now, don't be confused. Paul's not telling fathers to never do anything that upsets their children. <laughs> you got to, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. That's, that, that's the role of a father. He, he's warning against that pattern of, of relating to our children. Call it dysfunctional, call it abusive, if you will, that leaves them with a deeply ingrained, deep-seated anger that shapes their character and shapes their basic disposition toward life and relationships. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul added, lest they become discouraged. And the word Paul uses here is even more descriptive. The word is uh, athumeo. And it means literally without passion. Without passion. It describes a child who's fundamentally lacking in the courage and the will to face and to overcome the most basic challenges of life. It suggests a person who's disheartened, dispirited, disturbed, broken in spirit. And we could look at these as two separate commands, two separate don'ts, two distinct outcomes of parental provocation. But is it possible, is it possible that anger and discouragement are two parts of the same thing? The same effect. Is it possible that, that the discouragement Paul is warning about is a byproduct of anger? that the discouragement we are witnessing in many young people today is the result of anger that has finally just given up and turned inward? Can we look around today and see a whole lot of angry, discouraged young people in our communities and in our schools? You think about the, the horrifying scenes we've seen on the nightly news with the school shootings. Angry, yes. Discouraged, yes. Giving up. Ready to die. See, none of us sets out to, to raise angry, discouraged kids. If you Google it, you, you'll find articles pointing to a hundred different ways that you as a dad might provoke your children to anger and discouragement. Anger leading to discouragement. I'm not going to give you a hundred. Allow me to suggest a few this morning that seem to me to be 
the most common and maybe the most applicable. Here's the first one. You are, you are more likely to provoke your children to anger if you've never dealt with your own anger. Angry parents raise angry children. The only way that I know of to deal with my own anger is to commit myself to a program of forgiveness of those in my life who have hurt me. For many of us, that begins with committing ourselves to forgiving a father or mother who has deeply hurt us. I wasn't intending to tell this story this morning, but I think I will. When I finished college, right out of college, I was a youth pastor at a church in Federal Way. I had the privilege of working with a guy I I greatly admired. I, I, I was so honored I felt to be a part of his staff that they chose me to be the youth pastor in that church. I just loved this guy, admired him, respected him. Over time, I began to notice a a pattern in my own behavior toward him that I didn't understand. And essentially, I was kind of going underground. I was kind of subverting him. I was becoming very passive aggressive. I didn't have a label for it at that point. I didn't even know what passive aggression was. I probably slept through that in my psych class, you know. And, and over time, it, it just began to erode my relationship with him. I don't think he even knew it. I knew it. Later, I went on to graduate school and I, again, had the opportunity to work with a man, another man whom I greatly admired as a a teaching assistant in in graduate school, had been a mentor of mine in my undergraduate years. Again, I felt highly honored in the role. And then over time, he began noticing that I was relating to him in a similar pattern, resisting his authority, resisting his leadership. And I knew him and trusted him well enough that I was able to go to him and say, hey, you know, I, I'm relating to you in a way I don't want to relate to you. I don't understand why I'm relating to you this way. And I explained to him what was going on. And his, the first, after I finished doing my little spiel, the first thing, question he asked me was, tell me about your relationship with your father. And to make a long story short, that led to the realization that I had a lot of anger towards my dad. That, that I had never dealt with, and I, I, I didn't even know it was there. Probably had just kind of repressed it, shoved it down where it belonged, right? But that set me on a process that began with the realization that I had to forgive from my heart, my father, that he wasn't going to change. He was an old man by that time. He wasn't going to change. I had to change. I wasn't going to go to him and say, here, Dad, here's a list of all the ways you failed me as a dad. Because here's what I knew. I knew that my dad loved me in his own way. He loved me the best he knew how to love me. But he was also a product of a similar relationship. So I had to forgive my dad. And it it led to a transformation to where for a long time I wasn't able to say to my dad, I love you, Dad, to embrace my dad. And that came back. I was able from my heart to love on my dad. So important 
if we are unwilling to make that commitment, guys, our, and many of us are angry. I, I know that because I know men. If we're unwilling to make that commitment, our unresolved anger toward our own parents will spill over to our own children and we'll just pass it on to the next generation. We'll infect them with the anger and the resentment that we ourselves have been carrying around in our own hearts. Just a chapter back in Ephesians, Paul had written this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you would say to me this morning, you don't know what my dad was like. You don't know what he did. Here's what I know. Jesus Christ went to the cross for your sin and he bore your dad's sin on the cross as well. And because you have been forgiven, it is your responsibility now to get into that process of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an event for us mortals. It begins with a commitment and it follows with a process of saying, I am not going to hold over you ever again the hurt that you inflict once inflicted on me. It's a process. It's a daily process of seeing those people in our lives who have hurt us, who have wounded us, sometimes very, very deeply, seeing them under the blood of Jesus Christ. Second, you're more likely to provoke your children to anger if you withhold affection from them as a means of controlling them. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, once wrote in his journal, I know that my father loved me, but he did not seem to wish me to see it. Wow, huh? See, for some of us, uh, showing affection, speaking words of affection to our children is difficult because we didn't receive those things from our own parents. We've never seen it or heard it, so it's hard to know how to express it. But if we want to raise healthy children, we need to commit ourselves, again, to a program of affection. Third, thank you, by the way. You are more likely to provoke your children to anger if your discipline is harsh and controlling. Kind of a no-brainer. Study after study after study has shown a causal effect between harsh parenting and antisocial behavior in children. Children raised by overbearing parents are at a heightened risk of passive-aggressive behavior, of underperforming in school, uh, of turning to crime and violence, as well as drug or alcohol abuse. Drug and alcohol abuse, that, there's another way of angering your children. Fourth, you're more likely to provoke your children to anger if you choose not to discipline your children at all. Isn't that interesting? Or if your discipline is inconsistent. Kids who aren't disciplined at all will lack tools necessary to navigate personal relationships. They haven't experienced self-control. They've only experienced your control. They will lack the tools necessary to, to demonstrate respect for others, to cooperate effectively with, with peers and classmates and teammates and eventually work associates. Children who have been uh, disciplined inconsistently will be insecure kids because they've grown up in an environment where the in their formative years where the rules and the boundaries were constantly changing. They were never firm. 
Always changed according to their parents' whims. Always changed according to their parents' convenience. In order to become secure and healthy adults, children need to grow up with the confidence that the boundaries don't change. Consequences for violating boundaries are consistently enforced. Let me say this, because I see this a lot. You are not called to be your kid's BFF. You're not called to be the cool parent. You are called to be an adult presence in the lives of your children that represents the heavenly father in their lives. They need an adult. Paul goes on, he says, instead of those things, bring them up. Here's here's another incredibly vivid word. This this phrase, bring them up, is is one word in the Greek. It, It literally means to nourish your children with the goal of leading them to maturity and persisting in that until they reach maturity. All that's contained in this Greek word ektrepho that's translated into English with the phrase bring them up and and that's your mission, dads, as a father. Keep pouring the miracle grow on them. You know, you can take a trip to your local grocery store, take a trip to Costco and see what people fill their grocery carts with and and you will be rudely reminded that it's very possible to feed someone without actually nourishing them, Right? So the question becomes, how do I go about creating an environment in my home and in my relationships with my children that leads to the nourishment of their whole person so that on my watch they arrive at healthy maturity? During the time that I have influence over them, that they grow up to healthy maturity. Taking that question seriously will force us to carefully consider their physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, social development. I probably left some things out there. And that's a larger discussion than we have time for this morning. But Paul suggests two essentials for our consideration. He says, bring them up in the discipline you're taking notes this morning, you can go ahead and fill in those final blanks if you haven't already. Paul says that we're to nourish our children to maturity first in the discipline and then the instruction of the Lord. When you're raising children, you're you're constantly appealing to their conscience, their, their sense of what is right and wrong, to their will, that part of their being where the decisions get made, to their reasoning capacities, their intellectual ability to process experiences and information. And when we discipline our children, we are making an appeal to them. We're not just punishing them. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. When we discipline our children, we're making an appeal to all three of those things by our actions. I want to share with you a word picture that was helpful to me in fathering my children. It's from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verse 28. It says, like a city that is broken down and without walls is a person who has no control over his own spirit. You know, a person who has no control over his own spirit describes a child, does it not? 
And in the ancient world, a city with broken down walls was a defenseless city. It was vulnerable to attack by its enemies. And the writer of this proverb uses that image then to to describe that person that lacks self-control. Children need to learn self-control. And so the purpose of discipline, and I love this picture. It was very helpful to me. Maybe it's not for you. It was for me. The purpose of discipline is to temporarily build up the walls around them in order to protect them from themselves as well as from people and influences that would do them harm while they are progressively learning self-control. Successful parenting produces self-controlled, self-disciplined young adults. The writer of the Psalms, chapter 94, verses 12 and 13, Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord. Say what? Blessed? By discipline? Yep. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble. And grant relief to your children from days of trouble that'll probably come back on you. <laughs> discipline them. Writer of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. So bring them up in the discipline. And then secondly, the instruction. The instruction. If discipline is appealing to your child's conscience, his or her will and reasoning capacities by your actions, then instruction is making that same appeal by your words. And here's where that Deuteronomy 6 model comes into play. You don't have to be a gifted teacher, a skilled teacher. When, when God gave the command that's in Deuteronomy 6, he was speaking to the whole of Israel, all the men in Israel. And he said, you should have the word of God on your own heart. And so again, that you be in the word and then speaking of God's word with your children when you sit in your house. You're hanging out in the house. When you walk by the way, when you're in the car and you're traveling somewhere, you're, you're out for a walk, when you lie down, bedtime, when you rise up, breakfast time, it describes a lifestyle of teaching God's word to your children, taking, away, uh, taking advantage of teachable moments, discussing its meaning for your life and discussing its meaning for theirs. It's just a conversation. Paul said that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And when you consistently spend time with your children in God's word, you're going to, here's what's going to happen. You're going to establish a biblical worldview that will become the foundation for later conversations when you need to confront them about their words, about their actions, when you need to point out where they're wrong, when you need to bring correction. So ask yourselves this, Dad. Have I been intentionally, proactively teaching my children from God's word? Am I engaged in active, regular instruction, conversational instruction? The last phrase is, of the Lord. The discipline instruction of the Lord which, which means discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord's directives. That comes from the word of God. Discipline and instruction that he approves. And that's our accountability as fathers to merit God's approval of our conduct in relationship to the kids 
that he has entrusted to us for a few years. See, fathering is not for the faint of heart. Godly fathering is even more challenging and more difficult. You need the continual filling of the Holy Spirit. You need the word of God. You need to pray like you've never prayed before. You need to be present and engaged with your kids. And you need a community of believers and a community of other men, especially around you, to pray for you, to cheer for you, to encourage you, to support you in fulfilling your accountability as a dad. Again, in the Psalms, Psalm 127, verse 3, children are God's love gift. They are heaven's generous reward. Probably no greater calling for us as men than to be fathers. Fathers to our own children, fathers to others in the community of believers. It's a great honor. And let me say this morning to you who are single moms, who are doing double duty, we honor you today. And we're thankful for the hard work that you do, double duty, in the lives of your kids. So I'm going to ask as we close this morning, if, if you're a father, a grandfather, a father-to-be, a single mom, would you just stand? And I'd like to pray for you this morning. Now go ahead and stand right now. And uh, those around them, would you just put your hand somewhere appropriate on them? <laughs> you can stand if you need to with them. Let's pray together. Lord, none of us is, is adequate to this task. And Lord, I know that every father here who's been a father for any length of time We'll talk about failure and a sense of I'm not getting this right. And Lord, I pray that you'd encourage them today, that they would not give up, that they would persist, that they would stay with it, that they would keep pursuing their kids with that fierce love of God. And keep investing, keep counseling, keep instructing, keep correcting, even when it's hard, even when even when the kids are rebelling, Lord, I pray that uh, you would put it in the hearts of the, the dads, the granddads that are here today, the single moms, that, uh, Father, uh, you would you'd encourage them, you'd support them, you would um, build them up and help them to know that their labors are not in vain. For some of us, it's going to be a lot of clouds before the sun breaks out. And so, Lord, uh, would you keep filling us with your grace, with your spirit, with your word, and lead us often to prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.